If you're in a marriage which is not currently resemblant of a biblical model of marriage, what can you do to align yourself more closely to God's plan and designs? What do you do if you're the primary or even sole breadwinner of your family? You've discerned that you're not in a 1% situation, which is a situation which truly cannot or must not be reversed. And you want to move towards a more biblical model of marriage. Picking up where we left off at the end of episode 24, we said that we would break this section into two parts. The first part being what to do if your husband is open to also moving towards a more biblical model of marriage in which he is the primary or better yet sole breadwinner. And the second part being what to do if he's not open to this. Now, in either situation, nothing is going to be accomplished overnight. These things take time. And if you want to set yourself up for success, you want to assume that it's going to take some time. And we'll talk more about the kind of time that it takes to make these changes in next week's episode. If your husband is open to moving towards a more biblical model of marriage, we're first going to refer you back to episode 24, where we outlined what an ordered situation with a working wife looks like. In a nutshell, we said that a wife would be submissive in the finances, obedient with regards to her hours, and that she would not abdicate her God-given role as keeper and cultivator of culture in the home. Thus, the first phase in your game plan, if you are in a situation where you are currently the primary or even sole breadwinner and your husband is open to making the right sorts of changes, is to work to bring order to the current situation as it exists. So, number one, if you have abdicated your role as keeper and cultivator of culture in your home in any way, reclaim your role and do it with joy reclaim your role and do it with joy. Now bear with me because the thing is, ladies, if you're in this sort of situation and it seems to your husband that attending to matters of the home ultimately makes you a more unpleasant person to live with, he's going to have a hard time believing that you'll be happier and a more pleasant person if you have to do more of attending to home matters. And I know that probably 99.9% of women hearing this who are working full time will think to themselves, well, I'm grumpy about it because I don't have as much time as I want to have. I don't have the kind of time that I need to have to devote to matters of the home. And if I did have that kind of time that I wanted, then I wouldn't be grumpy. And that's why I need to stop working. And you know what? Yeah, there's there's truth to that. You objectively have less time to attend to matters of the home precisely because you are working. But what is also true and very important to note is that even exclusively stay-at-home moms feel short on time with regards to attending to home matters. So we have to get away from thinking that one scenario is easier than the other. Working and being a stay-at-home mom are not really comparable, except to say 
that they are both very demanding, but they are demanding in very different ways. And again, coming back to the discipline of joy, if you have any ideas that a discipline of joy is easier when you're a stay-at-home mom versus a working one, it's not. <laughs> I am a culinary school graduate. I did a five-year program and I worked in the food industry for six years. I worked in a receiving situation where I was unloading trucks and building requisitions. I worked as a line cook at half a dozen different independent restaurants, not chain restaurants, independent restaurants. I worked in sales, stocking and selling wine. I had been studying for the second level of sommelier exams. And I will tell you, it is not necessarily easier to be more joyful now being a stay-at-home mom. Um, I am working five hours a week, but that's really quite negligible in the grand scheme of things. Again, I don't think that the two situations are really comparable except to say that they both have their difficulties. I loved being a chef. I loved my colleague, uh, colleagues and <laughs> I didn't hate the hours. Um, I had 16, 18 hour days. My worst day was a 22 hour day. Um, and I got less than three hours of sleep before I had to start another one. It was rough getting home at two, three, four in the morning. Um, but I loved it. I loved the people I worked with. I miss it. And I also love being a mom. Uh, the thing about being a mom, especially to toddlers, <laughs> is that someone always needs something right now. <laughs> you know, the baby wants to be nursed. The potty trained toddler needs help dumping and cleaning his potty. The not yet potty trained toddler needs her diaper changed. They're hungry. They're always hungry. They have preferences for certain water sippy cups of a certain color. You can't just sit down and let everyone cry. Or, you know, you can, and then you cry with them. <laughs> the point is, when it comes to the discipline of joy, which, as we know, is a discipline of reaching for God's grace, um, the devil will always find ways to tempt us with excuses that sound perfectly logical. Because if they didn't sound perfectly logical, we would be considerably less likely to indulge in them, right? I encourage you to strive to discipline yourself against any excuses regardless of your situation because you will be tempted to make excuses no matter what your situation is or how it changes. And again, do give yourself grace. It is not going to happen overnight. It can happen very quickly. That depends on you. But we just spotlighted Darren Hardy's The Compound Effect last week. And moving in the right direction just means making one small excellent choice at a time. So where to start? Take some time to consider what kind of culture you want to build in your home because you cannot move towards the target efficiently and prudently if you do not know where or even what that target is. For example, when you have a discipline of joy, what do your kids see and what do they learn? Big picture, they learn based on your example that they're responsible for their mood for taking the time to put themselves in a good mood and be pleasant company and joyful servants of the family. 
They learn that they're responsible for choosing to focus on God's blessings and choosing to be happy because they are blessed. They learn that even when life is difficult, it does not have to be a drudgery and that it's up to them to decide that. That's the big picture, but it starts with very small things. It starts with nap times and bedtimes that give them the amount of rest that they need to behave well. It starts with timely meals and healthy meal choices. It starts with dancing to their favorite song first thing in the morning to get the blood flowing. What kind of culture do you want to build at home? We heard this quote from Father Raul Plu in episode 5 and again in episode 7. Quote, Never weary in cheering your family with your smile. It is not enough to avoid depressing the family. That is purely negative. You must brighten them up. Let their spirits expand. Be especially vigilant when the little ones are around. You must give them the alms of a smile, hard though it be at times. What a pity when children have to say, I don't like it at our house. End quote. Do you want to build a culture in your home where people like being at home? Where its members love coming home? Where the people in your home love bringing other people into that home to share your family's joy? Take some time to think about what kind of culture you want in your home. Then think of some small steps that you can take to build that culture. Remember, give yourself grace. Do something each day. Don't expect to make it all happen in the space of a week or even a month or even a year, but start somewhere. Start somewhere and do start. Number two, be vigilant about showing your husband respect. This is part of culture. If you want a culture of respect in your household, it has to start with you. Why? Not only because you are the keeper and cultivator of culture in your home, but because emasculation is an accepted aspect of the larger worldly culture. We're going to come back to this point next week. Be vigilant about showing your husband respect. And to that end, if you need a place to start, use the examen which we used in episode 14 and is available for download on our website. You can always shoot us a message via our Facebook page if you're having trouble locating it. This reversal of emasculation is so important in setting your husband up for success. In our end of the month episode last week, we stressed that some measure of success is needed for your husband to be able to provide well for his family. And so you should want him to succeed. And respect also inspires generosity so that the same tool uh, that you use to set your husband up for success is the exact same tool which can help him to avoid worldly lures that are often related to success in the workplace. This is very important to understand because this is where you see men who are breadwinners using late hours at work as an excuse to not have to go home because they find home unpleasant, stressful, and demoralizing. 
There are extremes in every direction. And the only sure way to avoid all of these extremes is to follow God's plans and designs. And if you're saying to yourself, good grief, is God really so exacting? Uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> if you need to hear a sermon on how exacting God is, that his plans should be followed to the letter, if one is to avoid consequences of any type, Listen to day 54 of the 2022 iteration of the Bible in a Year podcast. In a nutshell, Moses is prevented from entering the promised land simply because he struck a rock twice when God told him to do something else. And Father Mike talks about how this can be difficult for us to swallow, that Moses, who we tend to think of as, by and large, a very faithful individual, should have to suffer such dreadful consequences for what seems to us such a tiny transgression. But this is a lesson to us that God isn't joking around when he lays down his law. It's not trivial to God when you disrespect your husband. So God forbid that you should consider it trivial to the detriment and possibly ruin of your soul. Definitely listen to that podcast episode from Father Mike Schmitz anytime that you are tempted to brush off any sin as a trivial thing. Number three, give your husband the space he needs to practice financial headship. Meaning that if you're currently managing the finances, you hand them over to him. If you're not sure where to start, go back to episode 23, which was just a few weeks ago. We have a very detailed game plan for helping husbands thrive in financial headship. And yes, this can happen while you are still the primary or even sole breadwinner. Two common objections from women on this score are that he might be intimidated to learn how much money he has to make to support the family and or that he might decide that the money his wife's making is too good to let go of. And yes, either of those things might happen. I can't guarantee that they won't. But what changes is that you are no longer culpable for emasculating your husband. If he chooses to abdicate his role, in spite of you doing literally everything you can to set him up for success and prepare yourself to support him unconditionally, no matter what happens, you are that much closer to achieving sainthood. And you have to want sainthood above everything else. Give your husband the space to practice financial headship, even if he is not the breadwinner. Number four, share your dreams with your husband. And I, um, I, I use the word dreams very deliberately because going back to episode two, where we talked about woman as the crown of creation, we said in episode two that a wife must operate as God operates in two ways, very specifically, that she is completely respectful of her husband's free will. And by extension, then that she works through inspiring her husband versus attempting to control or manipulate him into a certain type of behavior. How do you share your dreams with your husband? The wording is very, very important. The first thing to remember is that complaining is not communicating. <laughs> uh, complaints are not inspiring. <laughs> 
If there is something about your situation which you want to change, such as desiring to move towards a biblical model of marriage, you must not complain about it, or at least not to your husband. We women tend to need to talk about things in order to process them, and it's perfectly fine to reach out to other women who are firm and committed to a biblical model of marriage and who also will not allow you to engage in husband bashing. It is one thing to ask for some measure of healthy commiseration from someone who knows what it's like to be in your shoes. It is quite another thing to engage in the objective sin of husband bashing. Second, you must demonstrate that you are willing to do whatever it takes to get there and that you take full responsibility for what you can do to move in that direction. And really what that means is we're simply reiterating the previous three steps. If you want your husband to believe that you'll be happier when you have more time to spend at home, you've got to be joyful about the time which you have at home now. If you want your husband to believe that you will respect him as the breadwinner and financial manager, you've got to show him respect now. Set him up for success and give him every opportunity to practice and to thrive. Not to mention, if you have any thoughts of, well, he needs to earn my respect. No, he doesn't. That's not what your vows said. You vowed to honor your husband period. It would be nice if you respected him for what he does indeed do, but that's not what your vows said. Nowhere in your vows did you say that you would honor him only when you deemed that he deserved it. And what is it about vows anyway? I mean, really, ladies, you have to understand your vows are what God judges you by at the end of your life. There is literally nothing that you can do in some other area of life which will somehow make up for deliberately disregarding your vows. Literally nothing. It doesn't matter how great of an employee you are. It doesn't matter how great of a mom you are. And really, we have to be honest, a mom whose kids watch her emasculate their father is not a good mom. Your vows are what you will be judged on. That's why they're vows, not promises, not pledges. They are vows. You have to understand how this works. You put your soul up against those vows as collateral when you made them. And a woman who leads her children into sin by modeling bad behavior towards their father, which they will inevitably imitate by disrespecting him and emasculating him, In Matthew 18, verse 6, Christ says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Being a good wife makes you a good mom. Being a bad wife automatically makes you a bad mom because what you're teaching your kids by your example is essentially that God's laws don't matter. Being a good wife is an integral part of being 
a good mother. So sharing your dreams with your husband, not with complaining, not by blaming him for what parts of your dreams cannot be accomplished without some action on his part. Definitely by doing what you can to bring yourself closer to that dream, regardless of his actions. But also, finally, by expressing your dreams aloud. Remember when we detailed the game plan to help a husband thrive in financial headship. We said that husbands cannot give what their wives don't ask for. The important thing there is how you share what you want. The main thing to understand and to remember about asking your husband for what you want is that if you are not open to receiving a no, if you are not open to being turned down, then you're not asking for anything at all. You're making a demand. Demands are not respectful. So when you share your dreams, you tell him with words like, I would love to stop working. It would make me so happy to be a stay-at-home mom. And then you leave it at that. You do not go into a tirade of complaints. You do not go into a litany of what he's doing or not doing that's preventing your dream from coming true. And you do not launch into a dissertation about how you currently feel unsupported and neglected. When you share your dreams with your husband, they are not demands. You try to inspire his support by backing up your commitment to your own dream with your own actions. In short, you demonstrate that you are a functioning adult. <laughs> now, I said that our next part would be to detail what to do if your husband is not willing to change the situation in which you are the primary or sole breadwinner. And actually, to tell you the truth, it's the same process. Uh, why then did I say that I was going to break it up into two parts? Because in this second situation where a wife is willing and wanting to move towards a biblical model of marriage and a husband is not, it's very much about planting seeds. And that can be very difficult for a wife to, um, well, to be happy with that, to feel that it is worth doing when there really appears to be no promised return. It's one thing if a husband is willing, right? When he says he's willing, you're much more likely to be willing yourself and excited even to do everything you can to set him up for success, which ultimately sets yourself up for success. So yes, it's so much harder when there's no willingness on his part and it seems like there's no hope for fruit. Um, I saw this unattributed quote on social media, which applies here, quote, we cannot force someone to hear a message which they are not ready to receive, but we must never underestimate the power of planting a seed, end quote. It's very difficult when a husband is, for whatever reason, resistant to being head of the family. When my husband was drinking heavily on a daily basis, it was practically impossible to imagine a situation where he would finally be ready to be head of the household and to be the example of virtue that God was calling him to be to his children. But fortunately for us, what God sees clearly 
is more beautiful than anything we can possibly conceive with our imagination. And that, that is what we have to hold on to. That God knows what he's doing by asking what he asks of us. That is the only response that makes sense to anything that happens in our life. Faithfulness to God is the only response that makes sense. Ultimately, because only he can make any wrong right. We can facilitate, we can speak and act in ways which are conducive to healing, to reordering. But God is the one who heals. He is the one who orders. And you know, that line from the Canticle of Zechariah applies to each one of us. Quote, You, my child, shall be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. End quote. We pray this every morning during lots, every morning prayer. And it's actually speaking to us. Each of us is called to be a prophet. We don't have a very good understanding of this word prophet. I think the general public thinks uh, that it means something along the lines of fortune teller. <laughs> um, but incredibly, the dictionary, if you simply Google the term, actually has this right. The definition of prophet, according to Google, reads the following, quote, a person regarded as an inspired teacher or proclaimer of the will of God. End quote. When you act in accord with God's teachings, you are a proclaimer of his will. You proclaim his will to the world by living in conformity to his will. Each of us is called to be a prophet in our own right. And for us married women, we are called to be prophets in our marriage. When we live in God's ways, when we live in accordance with his will, we proclaim his will to those within our household. And we prepare the way for the Lord to enter into our home and into the hearts of those residing with us. One last quote here from Archbishop Fulton Sheen's Life is Worth Living. Quote, to a great extent, the level of any civilization is the level of its womanhood. When a man loves a woman, he has to become worthy of her. The higher her virtue, the more noble her character, the more devoted she is to truth, justice, and goodness, the more a man has to aspire to be worthy of her. The history of civilization could actually be written in terms of the level of its women. End quote. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Mm -hmm.